long, long time ago. I can still remember. Is a mariachi band? Is that a the way the mariachi made a me snobbish thing or a slobbish thing? Oh, I don't From know. Slovenia, <laughs> Slovenia. Hello and welcome to Mount Rushmore. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined as always by my slovenly friend Richard. Hello, uh, and my burp, burp. Oh gosh, get a load of this guy. And my snobbish, yaley, upper crust, aristocratic, uh, ascot wearing friend Michael. How do you do? Today's category is slobs versus snobs and how they're depicted in entertainment and literature and all that stuff. Now, I chose this because I think it feels distinctly, if not uniquely, American. The slobs and snobs, haves and have-nots, these are players. But the game is about getting yours. It's about getting your piece of the pie and shaking up the establishment. And, and that's, gosh darn it, what this country is about, for better or for worse. And it feels like a lot of worse lately. What could be... What could be more uniquely American than like the Titanic, a film about a struggling artist seducing an aristocratic chick on his way to the new world? I mean, he's coming from a country with an actual class system that you can't break to a world where you can be whatever you want. He leaves the slobs in steerage class and sleeps with a snob. So I love this category for that reason, and I want to hear what you guys think exemplifies this, this category. Yes, so let's let's go at it. And these guys are fighting not just today for the Mount Rushmore um, to be on the top of Mount Rushmore to win the Mount Rushmore, but for the uh, Murray Award. As Bill Murray oh. was uh, the star of many of these things, I have had chiseled into granite a Bill Murray statue. So the that's winner good looking, win by, that's good looking good. by the way. You, the pock marks, you could really see them. Yeah, yeah, the acne scarring. Yeah. Okay, so is there anybody who just feels like jumping on this first? Well, I will go first okay. since, since you mentioned. Bill Murray. Oh, okay. Uh, one of my choices is the movie Meatballs. Already winning. Um, it's not fair. Already winning. <laughs> I guess if you, I guess if you like, you know, hit a home run on your first pick. Not that this is a home run. Everybody, <laughs> this is Jeff. A, it's already a solid double. You didn't even have to say anything. Right. Top top of the inning. Yeah, we don't have to. Uh, Meatballs, the uh, direct directed by Ivan Reitman, first of several Ivan Reitman uh, Bill Murray jams. And it's one of those movies where. I remember really, really liking it as a kid when it would come on like HBO, like at 10 o'clock at night. And I kind of thought, well, this probably didn't hold up very well. And I went and rewatched it as we were getting ready for this episode. And it's pretty good. Is it? It's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much just let's let Bill Murray just be Bill Murray circa 1979 yeah. for like 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it I, is, is that like the first like summer camp slobs versus snobs? No, you're type thinking of, movie? of summer camp slobs versus snobs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. That's like ballistic X versus slobs. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have been just about the first one. Like when you think of the wet, the, the trope of those type yeah. of movies that played, you know, out, played out in wet hot. The losing played out in the wet hot, yeah. I, I also think that was maybe the first of this new breed in which the cast of Saturday Night Live had been anointed the elite comedy performers. And right. they had established that in Animal House. And to hear Reitman talk about um, his experience with Animal House, he did everything, produced this thing, and then walked away with virtually like none of the credit. Right. And they wouldn't let him direct it. Y- yeah. And so now he's kind of SOL, and he just finds this kind of cheapo summer camp comedy. And then Murray Murray wouldn't even agree to be in it until two days before they Like they didn't shot. know if he was going to show up. <laughs> they had no idea. His history of being Bill Murray and not yeah. no one knowing if he's actually doing the movie till he gets there starts yeah. almost literally with his first movie. <laughs> well, I don't, I and don't, at that point, I mean, he was, you know, he and he wasn't even, to some extent, who's opened up a, a beer I'm here? I'm sorry, that's a beer. It's a brewski. Slob. 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 Damn, slob. slob. Hey, at any time, just call out, sl- if, if, just call out does slobber slobbery. Or, or snobbery. Mm-hmm. That's fine. No, because keep in mind, he wasn't part of that initial Saturday Night Live yeah. cast. And so he was, for a long time, kind of like the, the out, not the outcast, yeah. but sort of the, the oddball. Which is he funny. Was new, he was the family. new kid. Yeah, exactly. He, his, in his repla- he was replacing Chevy Chase. Snob. Who was the snob. So right. I, if they, that's a, I think that's really interesting. And Chevy Chase was going to play Otter in Animal House, but they wouldn't let him. So. Right. So I, I do find that fascinating. So, yeah, so he wasn't, but he was yet to be proven box office. Right. Gold. I mean, he was still, I mean, Ivan Reitman basically says, look, he was the nobodyest of nobodies. Yeah. But at the same time, he would, they'd walk, be walking around New York together 
and he would just be doing Bill Murray stuff, you know, going into restaurants and doing the, can I get a cheeseburger, please, yeah. type of stuff. Yeah. And just people would immediately gravitate to him, yeah. even though, you know, nobody really knew who the hell he was. That the happens time. with all yelling, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Someone's just yelling. People just go like, "What's who's that yelling? It must be somebody famous. Or, or, in, famous. Tr- or in trouble. Right. I feel like what, one reason why Richard is um, in the lead right now, other than choosing meatballs, is also choosing the film uh, that this Murray statue, which is right here, it's a real thing, this Murray statue, uh, which went, Bill Murray, who went to be the kind of, I guess, uh, almost to the Reitmans of the genre, the his, his um, Robert De Niro, his guy that he brought into all these films. Right. But he also set this genre that's very Capra-esque in which he gave a monologue that talked about class warfare. Yeah, absolutely. These Camp North Star guys, they're going to steal all the good-looking girls anyway. Right. These, we're the mutts. We're the, there's something seriously wrong with us. You know, They're going to win, and it just doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Yeah. yeah. That set speech, the yeah. pace for this, this uh, signature part of those films that he picked up in Caddyshack, and I think he did in... Stripes. Uh, stripes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, actually, yeah, he, yeah, Stripes, he gives not the, Yeah, he gives those speech and Stripes about, you know, the U.S., you know, we're the, yeah. the mongrels, the yeah. dogs and all that stuff. Yeah, and that feels, for me, kind of a cornerstone of that of that genre. Yeah, absolutely. And also, the one thing I found interesting, doing a little bit of, re- not much research, but apparently the, the, uh, the his look for the, the whole movie, kind of the Hawaiian shirt and yeah. shorts and the hat, that just happened to be what he was wearing the first day he showed up on set. Slob. Yeah. Because he just yeah, <laughs> slob. He just showed up, like like we said, you know, didn't know knew he's coming until the day of. He just sort of shows up. They look at him and go, Yep, perfect. Yeah. Let's go with it. <laughs> so and I don't know how much of that role necessarily was a stretch mm-hmm. for Bill Murray in nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. I think also the archetypes that are created amongst the slob. Uh, counselors in training in that film. Right. There's like the kid who's kind of like the athlete. You got the fat kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got uh, the spaz kid. You got the ladies' man. Yeah. You kind of got all these archetypes. Which, which... You've Chris, got Chris Mc, Chris Makepeace. Chris Makepeace. Whatever uh, happened to him? I think he was Chris in Makepeace. My Bodyguard. Yeah. And then, yeah, he was like yeah. kind of a thing for a little yeah, while. Yeah, So Chris Makepeace, if you're listening, <laughs> we'd love to have you on the show. Call but up. Please also download and subscribe and listen to all yes. our episodes. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm going to put another statue called the Makepeace next to the Murray, and then the, the person who loses can get the Makepeace. Michael, what's your first choice? Well, from one Bill Murray movie to another, uh, mine is Caddyshack. Okay, which now is, you're the winner. Which, there you go. Done. Which the, what the tagline was. <laughs> what was the tagline for it? Do you remember? No. Slobs versus snobs. Oh, okay. well, there you go. <laughs> Nailed it. Okay, all right. Um, this movie is just kind of replete with that. It's not just like the Rodney Dangerfield, like Al Severic. Al Cesaric? How do you say it? Al Zeric. Al Zeric. Al Cesaric, I think. Yeah, something. It's it's not just his character versus Judge Smales. It's uh, Danny as the caddy and the lower class working kid uh, versus. Uh, the country club and against yeah. Judge Smales. Yeah. And, and it's, his kid. And it's the entire yeah. it's the entire uh like staff versus the country club. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's even Ty who kind of plays both sides. He's kind of both this rich snob guy, but he's also kind of Well, he's rich, but he's not necessarily a snob. Yeah, he's he kind of can straddle both lines. Mm-hmm. And then the the Bill Burry character is um Total snob. Total snob. Yeah. Yeah. Also, also just, so like there's this movie is just like, it's not, you think that it's just like this one kind of nouveau rich guy coming in and wanting to take over or, you know, wanting to prove that he is on par with, with Judge Smales, but it's everyone versus this country club. This country club is the epitome. Yeah. Right. Everyone that belongs to it and everyone that supports it, you know, everyone that supports it is a lower class Mm -hmm. and everyone that, Attends it generally is mm-hmm. is and at the end it just gets blown up. Get blown up. <laughs> Literally gets blown up real yeah. good. Is there's also a seduction of Danny by the upper class because there's Ty who kind of represents both, who lets almost lets him know that you know the drugs and the rock and roll all that stuff can happen in this upper class. But Judge Smalls kind of seduces him, but he's also seduced by the hot chick, right? He's maybe knocked up Lacey Underdolls. Lacey Underdolls, yeah. <laughs> He's maybe knocked up the actual little Irish immigrant girl who yeah. represents his his class. His class. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> thanks for nothing. I'm also in Animal House without an accent. <laughs> right. 
Wow, how well, is that? Yeah, ulti- ultimately, I guess it is it, it is Danny's morals that are on the line because mm-hmm. he has to make the choice at the end whether he's going to, uh, you know, play for Al. Yeah. Or not, and you know, kind of smiles, threatens him with his that scholarship. He's like, "You're never gonna get the scholarship," and he's and he also <laughs> the world needs ditch diggers too. <laughs> and he ultimately chooses, I guess, yeah, you know, the blue collar side or yeah. the good side, the quote unquote good side. Um, I guess though, as the as the snob here on this podcast yeah. today, <laughs> I should side with smiles because it is kind of unfair. Yeah, yeah, that you know, uh, what's his name fakes an injury. <laughs> and then brings in the hotshot kid and mm-hmm. cheats his way on there. And then yeah. the only way that he wins is via explosion. Yeah. <laughs> and the ball goes in. Like, isn't there a time limit for how long a I f- golf yep. ball? I f- yeah, I feel like that explosions are against the rules. I'm not sure. I'd have to break out my rules of Let golf. Let the PGA but yeah. addendum to 2003. <laughs> right. so, so I kind of, I mean, I shouldn't side with the rich people here, but I, a little, little bit I do. So yeah. is, is, the, is the, the gopher a slob or a snob? Oh. I think it's a he's a snob, right? Because he's kind of taunting Carl Spackler. It's like yeah, he's living the good life on this on this golf course. He doesn't want any other. He doesn't want any other gophers on there. He's living off the backs of others. Yeah, mm-hmm. fuck that gopher, fucking snob, <laughs> my man. Well, that I definitely... mean that, that that movie does end with just the best line, which is like everybody. We're all gonna get yeah. laid. Yeah. Just, just so sticks out of nowhere, and then and, and then segueing right into some Kenny Loggins. Yeah, because yeah. when you think I'm gonna get laid, Kenny Loggins. There's so many things in the movie that seem to separate itself from the cinematic through line to the point where it's like a cartoon. Where you think Did that really happened, like the like Rodney Dangerfield is this force of of weirdness throughout the whole thing. Where uh, so what? So let's dance. And he opens up his golf right. bag and plays any way you want. It. That's the way. And like, nice hat. You get a bowl of soup <laughs> with it. Bowl of soup. You must have been something before electricity. <laughs> um, just, just doing his own thing. Completely. Was that the movie that, that he had like the electronic gizmo, or is that Caddyshack too? No, that's Caddyshack. Yeah, okay. like the clubs will pop out. Yeah. And he's got the rangefinder and the whole yeah. Yards, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a fucking cheater too. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> the. Role Murray plays in this one too is he's got uh, he's got that whole kind of monologue. Um, you're lean, you're mean, you're not too far between, and also the the bit about the llama, which is repeated by your frat buddy friends and people who are not really funny through right. most of your life. Or uh, also also repeated as the uh, coming out of nowhere, yeah, the Cinderella, 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 Cinderella boy. Uh, Everyone can do that. Yeah, per, that that uh, fairly decently. But at that one point, you know, he basically says. You know, we kill the golfers. So if there's ever a snobs versus slobs moment there, there's actual <laughs> um, revenge that he um, is going for. Okay, so uh, Michael and Richard have both come out really pleasing the judge. And I see the statue. Oh, my God, it's smiling, you guys. How can granite change its form? Well, it's kind of a little Bill Murray sort of like half smile. Oh, that's right. Spoiler alert. This thing is made out of jelly beans. Ah, shit. <laughs> that Jeff is massaging this entire time. Uh, I like jelly beans. <laughs> um, so, Richard, what's your second? Uh, so, since I, th- I think we've mentioned it a couple of times already here, uh, my second one is Animal House. Another one that I rewatched fairly recently. The movie or the house? Not the TV show and not the house. The, <laughs> house, the house full of animals. animals. <laughs> oh, it smells like urine. <laughs> Such a good movie. Yeah, I re- like I said, I rewatched it actually a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't not even about around this. And it's just one of those movies where there's not really a sour beat in it. Yeah. And again, another story of a group of a lot of times a lot of times these movies do involve sort of teenagers or just just slightly older than teenagers. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it boils down not just to snobs versus slobs, but this seems to have kind of an age gap in a lot of these sort okay. of movies. Yeah. It's not just sort of them versus the other frats. It's also them mm-hmm. versus the university and the town. And shit, do I need need to say anything about Animal House? It's a fucking animal. They also see the boundaries. There's snobs and there's slobs, and there's Otis Day in the Nights and the (laughs) the Dexter Lake uh, boarding house or whatever that the club is that they go to, where they realize that uh, Otis doesn't love them as much as they think. Otis, (laughs) my man, and they realize you are (laughs) leaving, leaving. They realize that. Whether they're slobs or snobs, they exist in this academic, uh, intellectual 
balloon that gets burst when they step out. It is a pretty towering work, towering work of like white male privilege. Yeah, yeah. When you get right down to it, yeah. I mean, it, it, look, their bullshit should have been called. And they should have been kicked out. Yeah, we're rooting for them in spite of the fact that they're assholes. Yeah, within the echelon of snobs or slobs, there's always there's the hierarchy as well. So within the um, uh, Delta Tai Cow, you know, fraternity, there's there's animal or Bluto's right? Bluto, Bluto, not, not not Bluto. Not Bluto. Does <laughs> <laughs> Popeye? Do we just yeah. go into that? Okay, okay, okay. There's uh, and there then there's Otter and there's Hoover and all these characters who seem right. more collegiate and seem more polished and they or, could represent the fraternity or Boone or Boone, yeah. So they're the sweater wearing, you know, chino wearing kind of typical college student we think of that time. Right. Uh, it's but then there's guy like Stork and guy like Blue D-Day. D-Day, these guys who were just out of control and what D- we, what D-Day who was originally supposed to be Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, yeah, I think that was so amazing. I remember as a kid thinking he reminds me of Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, they, Why is he not they totally just went and cast the most Dan Aykroyd looking guy yeah. they could possibly yeah. get. Uh so within the world of the slobs there are some people who could consider themselves above the others. Sure. But we love them because they don't, because they're brothers with these uh, other slops. Yeah, some of them got better grades than others. I imagine. You yeah. know, then when they could do the whole role, uh, the readout of everyone's grades, like mm-hmm. I think like Boone and somebody else, maybe it's uh, maybe it's Otter had like 2.2s or just barely yeah. passing. And then like, yeah. doesn't, isn't like, doesn't Bluto like, he didn't even go to class. Basically, he doesn't have like a, yeah. a grade or something yeah. like that. And he also gets the monologue. There's the the um, the Germans bomb yeah, yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all. It's not over until we say it is. And then becomes senator at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's strange to think of. This isn't on my list, and maybe it should have been. And I'm kicking myself, and I'm sorry, Emily. But I was thinking of um, uh, broken away, not broken. Breaking away. away. Breaking away. Thank yeah. you. And spirited away. Yeah, Let's spirited just think lots of guesses. <laughs> Miyazaki movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking of spirit. Uh, so when I went to college, I didn't feel like there was like this big us versus them sort of thing going to school, even amongst like fraternities. I didn't think like I didn't think of if of a as a class thing at UCSB, but maybe that was because it was UCSB, and maybe that there was still a big fraternity aspect to it, but mm-hmm. I just didn't care or it yeah. didn't affect me. And you know, I was thinking of like in. In breaking away when you have like the cutters versus like yeah. just the school itself and there was this big class warfare but like i don't have that sort of reference of growing up within that mm-hmm. uh right. at uc at usc did they have that sort of like yeah kind of i mean it again it's a pretty big commuter school so yeah you know you would you'd have a lot of people who just showed up, did their classes and, and left, left so it wasn't and everyone have, wasn't in the college town yeah, it was Everyone. like a college town, and yeah. it was even people who lived near campus. I mean, near campus could be, you know, ten minutes away or something yeah. like that. I mean, there were there were the frats when I and I lived directly behind the frats mm-hmm. for most of my time there. And I don't know. I, I definitely was like a there was a class system. I mean, you had people you well, had people, going to class, <laughs> sort of <laughs> what what they tell me at least. But you did have. Clearly, the the kids that were there on scholarship or the kids mm. that were paying their way through mm. versus the kids who clearly were there because mom and dad had enough money to be able to, so they could afford to get into USC. Yeah. I think college as a setting for a slobs versus snobs is interesting because in some of the cases, we don't even feel the impact of the snobbery that might be put upon us because it's literally in another system. It's yeah. all so far away. But yeah, I do remember there was a rich dorm or something like that. And then there was the kind of cheaper dorm that was across and there right. was there was literal literal um um war- warfare happening between water balloons and things like that between between those but yeah i didn't i didn't really they, see they it they were much. filled with perrier perrier <laughs> what other kind of we're not animals <laughs> okay what's your second uh Michael. my second one is the movie demolition man oh wow whoa whoa that's awesome. deep cut in okay the, in the future the world is a mess yes this is this is like 2032. It's kind of dystopian, yeah. one might say. One might. A uh, huge earthquake ravaged Los Angeles in the year 2010, so seven years ago. And there's a megacity that was formed mm-hmm. called San Angeles. Mm. Uh, that city had 
was like a utopia. That utopia's idea was a Dr. Cocteau. He was this very uh, peaceful, uh, you know, he was very uh, pacifistic. Is that kind of the right word? Is that a word? He was a pacifist. Pacifistic. Pacifistic. I guess so. Maybe that's not even a word. Word snob. Between Cocteau and Fistic, (laughs) I'm just kind of raging hard on right now. Uh, anyway, this is like this idealized portion of the world. And you and in that world, though, there's like a grimy underbelly. There are the people that live in the sewers, the people that don't want to adhere to the new rules and regulations of society. Are these the people who don't use the three shells? And those are the people that don't use Whatever the three shells. Whatever the fuck shells. they're supposed to be used for. <laughs> they want to eat what they want to eat. Not just Taco Bell. Not just Taco Bell. Led by Edgar Friendly. A.K.A. Dennis Leary, mm-hmm. who in this movie gives like the most ridiculous Dennis Leary sort of uh, <laughs> anti-government, yeah. uh, pro-freedom. It was like right in the heyday of it, like his yeah, his Leary s- doing Carlin, doing Leary, yeah. doing yeah. Bill Hicks. Yeah. Do you think they even just scripted that, or they just have like a, a like a, a lo- they just had like a break in the script? Said Dennis Den- Leary to to talk for five minutes yeah. about <laughs> come back. But it's basically this this perfect society that is just this facade over, you know, kind of the real world. And it's these slobs. What I liked about this movie, I mean, it's just a wonderful movie. I was reading about it a little bit. Just think, I was sitting here thinking back about it. And they needed a slob, you know, also this, uh, you know, the Sylvester Stallone, John Spartan character. Yeah. This guy that they kind of refer to as like a, a, a gorilla and a yeah, caveman. Cra- yeah. To come back and kind of take on this adversary of Simon Phoenix, yeah, the uh, the Wesley Snipes character, <laughs> um, in like this new world where the, you know they don't know how to do it at this point. They're, yeah, they're so perfected and they're so pristine that it's you mm-hmm. know they don't have guns. They the don't war have real has been weapons. bred out of them. Yeah. yeah, like if I had to make chicken, I would have to kill a chicken. I can't yeah. do that. I don't think they eat I don't, meat. I don't know. Catch either. a chicken. <laughs> like I like the idea of like the snobbishness of society is like you have to fall in line and then people coming in and trying to disrupt that because they don't believe in that for mm-hmm. one. And then ultimately them having to rely on, you know, so it's just a little thing mumbling through <laughs> the, one of the best movies from the nineties. I think his, the side of his mouth was at maximum pitch and angle in that movie. Was there ever, I feel like he, that movie and judge dread turned into one movie in my brain. Yeah. Oh, they shouldn't have. He shouldn't have done both those movies yeah. at the same time. Which it's funny because like one is a kind of about a police state, and one is more of like this utopian mm-hmm. state. But they're all about control and breaking away yeah. from control. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you this: Has there, when you think of snobs and slob stories, there's often a uh, caste or class element to it. Have there ever been snobs versus slobs in the same? class or in the same cast like all things being equal in terms of economics has there ever been a thing where the person was literally just a slob versus somebody odd couple i mean yeah odd couple did they make the same amount of money i guess they did i would i would suspect i mean i don't know i think being a sports writer back in the 60s for a major Mm -hmm. new york newspaper he probably did okay yeah And, and then you know felix was what a lawyer of some sort or mm-hmm. I mean they both had to live together so I, I can't assume I assume they were pretty close paying equal rent in the, yeah, yeah basically yeah neither seemed to be the top or the bottom per se in that financially in that relationship so, so economics wasn't a factor it wasn't like royalty versus a peasantry it was actual class right or, or actual slobbery yeah it was and to some extent sort of a very antiquated version of masculinity versus you know Male femininity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was Demolition Man was great. I think Snipes. I remember. I did think Snipes and Stallone were actually pretty good matches in that movie. Like the fight scenes were so great. Like the the movie yeah, is yeah. is weirdly wonderful. There's this strange sense of like kind of reverse 1984 double speak where mm-hmm. things aren't where everything is made nice. Like everything that they yeah. do is to kind of gloss over how awful things yeah. kind of are. Yeah. With like having like, you know, like a double nice day and, uh-huh. and you're just like, what is this weird movie? What is this weird <laughs> society? Like, like it seems awful to live in. Like yeah. no wonder people kind of rejected it <laughs> and lived in the sewers. But yeah. uh, 
I mean, just the two names, just Simon Phoenix and John Spartan. It's just like, who is the... Who's the, who's the ad genius wizard who came up with that one? It was just like, you know what? 100% this is their name. That's badass. But yeah, their fight, se- their fight scenes were good mm-hmm. and they kind of... Their, their repartee back and forth was... Yeah. You know, on par with the best kind of action yeah. movies of the mid-90s. How would you rank it in terms of Rob Schneider movies? <laughs> oh, my God. I Among the it. best. Uh, uh, it's up there. It's probably his. You know how I got jammed in that movie? Actually, it's Benjamin Bratt. All the other characters characters have kick-ass names. Him, Alfredo Garcia. <laughs> they just cool. give up that's at like, the point. That's we, the... We, need, we, need, we need a Hispanic name. That I'll... could be on the menu at Olive Garden. Right. <laughs> Garcia, I don't that's know. When, yeah, that's that's when you go to a Mexican place that serves like American food as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you can get a hamburger. You can also get Alfredo Garcia. So uh, we are at our halftime, and this has been a fun little romp through um, the film history of snobs versus slobs. Don't be a, a slob. Don't be a snob. Just be a fob, a fan, friend of... Oh, shit. I couldn't even make something come out of <laughs> that. That you were like, so good. Yeah. Oh, my God. Be a fam, a friend of Mount Rushmore podcast. Hey, guys, please download, rate, and review. Um, you could be a slob or you could be a snob. You could you could rate us a five and because you are a slob who loves just kind of any recorded media. Or be a snob and rate us a one. I don't care. Just and leave a rating. You could use your erudite upper crust five-syllable words. Or you can just be like the last slob who just wrote pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. If you're if you're a snob, just get your assistant to do it. Yeah, that's right. And if you're a slob, just mash you your hands against the keyboard. You can just download the first one and just let it keep playing for the other ones because <laughs> yeah. you're too lazy or covered in Cheetos yeah. to actually go you know, turn it off. That's uh, fine too. Either way, either way. Um, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also MySpace. Hmm. I'm sure there's a Mount Rushmore something on there. Maybe the DJ, DJ Rush. We'll get it. We'll ask Tom, see if he Techno can DJ. get it set up yeah. for us. Okay, so we, we are back. Uh, it was um, Michael Richard, Michael Richard. Now it's Richard. Be my turn. And okay. I went with a golf one, but it is not the movie Caddyshack. Oh, shit. It is not the movie Caddyshack 2. Okay. <laughs> um, it is John Daly. I don't know this. Golfer John Daly. Oh, the golfer. Okay. Yeah. Um, kind of... It, the first He's a mess, right? A giant fucking mess. Kind of if if you took a if you took a redneck from like if you took basically Cletus the slackshot yokel and trained him to be able to hit a golf ball 350 yards and gave him a lot of alcohol, you, you pretty much have John Daly. Okay. So he uh kind of burst on the scene in 1991. Um he won the PGA championship, one of the four majors. Um, he was the ninth alternate into the field. So nine other people had to drop out before mm. he even got a chance. Okay. And he was just this kind of real heavy set, mullet, mulleted, good old boy from Arkansas. Keep talking. Who could just mash the shit out of the ball. <laughs> and he just his, his backswing was so like if you if you don't if you know anything about golf, you know, your backswing, you try and keep it nice and level and smooth. He just basically got got the club basically until it almost hit his butt. And then just swing as hard as he could. Mm-hmm. It was this violent, like... You should see Richard right now. He looks like a gorilla. <laughs> just swinging a tree branch. <laughs> like trying, trying to shoo away some little chimpanzee getting towards his, like, his banana or something. But That's my golf swing. Okay. It works for me. And, and wound up winning this tournament, kind of just coming out of nowhere. And he was pretty much everything that golf wasn't at that point. Mm. Like I said, he was... This kind of good old boy from Arkansas. He smoked like like two or three packs a day, even on the golf course. So like basically, he wow. would smoke as he's walking up the the mm-hmm. fairway. Mm-hmm. Hand it to his caddy, hit a shot, get the get the, uh, the cigarette back. cigarette back, and keep going. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, wound up winning also the 1995 British Open. Um, and after he won it, he filled the uh, claret jug, which is the trophy that they win, with chocolate ice cream and chocolate sauce. Oh jeez, ate, ate a Sunday out of it. <laughs> After he won the PGA Championship, they got a couple of his friends and his agent. They got into a limousine and went straight to a McDonald's. <laughs> wow. So this tells you a little wow. bit about John Daly. One thing I did, another story I heard about him. After the third round of the PGA Championship that he won, 
he wound up going to an Indianapolis Colts preseason game because mm, of the mm-hmm. tournament was somewhere in Indiana near there. Mm. And the owner, Bob Ursay, comes up to him and says, hey, I, you know, did you just play football? And he said, yeah, he was like a field goal kicker in, in high school. So they actually were going to work something out to have him actually suit up for the Colts as a place kicker and like kick <laughs> it. And this was in between the, before the final round of this first championship that he won. Oh, wow. This is just how his brain works. Mm-hmm. But, and he was constantly a pain in the ass for the PGA Tour because he was, he would engage in, in uh, activities that, let's say, was conduct unbecoming okay. a championship golfer. Okay. He opened up a, a golf course somewhere in Arkansas and they had the news come out to do a segment with him. And he just was out there shirtless, like big gut, <laughs> no shirt on, talking to him, went and played around with the uh, reporter, no shirt on, uh-huh. drinking drinking something out of his cup and, yeah. and smoking the whole time. Uh, was he related to Jimmy Carter or something like that? He he, seems like you a- know what? It is It is very, if you could picture, if you've never seen John Daly, if you could picture Billy Carter, mm-hmm. you've got a pretty decent image yeah. of what John Daly yeah. was like. Got suspended several occasions from the PGA Tour for just doing, you know, things like at Pro-Ams hitting golf balls off of, um, off of beer cans that people would hold in their mouths. <laughs> and uh, generally palling around with a Kid Rock. <laughs> okay, I was wondering what he was going to Yeah, <laughs> and would just do stuff like he was kind of became the real life uh, Tin Cup, whatever yeah. his name yeah. is. In a tournament in Australia, he uh, made a triple bogey on on his last hole, then threw his putter into the into the lake, and then uh, ball into the lake, and then didn't sign for the scorecard. And cursed everyone out and just walked away. <laughs> um, major gambling problem. He, uh, I'm trying to find the exact number. He claims to have lost between 50 to $60 million oh. over the last 15 years. Wow. He, in uh, 2005, he won about $750,000 for coming in second in a tournament. Mm-hmm. And then immediately went out to Las Vegas and lost $1.5 million. I love this guy. Spent on a $5,000 slot machine. A $5,000. I don't don't even, I I didn't know those things existed. I get above above a dollar slots and I'm like, "Eh." seems like something that they kind of made it when they saw him walking in. How how, how much is the slot machine? (laughs) Five, five thousand. Thousand. (laughs) What is it perceived that John Daly is out to shake up the stiff, stuffy establishment of the PGA or is he, just who being John? Uh, he's just John Daly. I oh, mean, wow. his okay. his his slogan is "Grip it and rip it." Okay. So one of his best friends actually said something um, right after he had. Uh, I think it's after he lost that one point five million dollars. Asked him how he was doing, and he just said, "I came into this world with nothing. I'm going out with nothing. I'm going to have a hell of a time in between." All right, Michael. Uh, my next is Fraser and Niles Crane. Oh, fun! Ooh, nice. Versus Martin Crane, their okay. father. All the right. show Frasier. That's awesome. This show really transcended Cheers. It, I, I don't know. Is it better than Cheers? It's hard to say. I think it was written no. better than Cheers. No, I can say that. No. But I don't I don't enjoy it as much. I know that I'm shooting myself in the foot to start it off, but I think that the characterization of uh Frasier took off in his own show. Like yeah. he was always he was always the elitist amongst the Cheers crowd, mm-hmm. but then you paired him up with his brother. Right, who was even more of who's a snob. even more elitist, and Fraser looked somewhat normal. Yeah, but then you contrasted them against their like blue collar ex cop mm-hmm. uh, father Martin, and he kind of shone again. Like yeah. he kind of shined again. I mean, still he was still dulled by mm-hmm. Niles's uh, effeminate ways, and uh, you know, putting napkins down on any seat he yeah he sat on. Yeah, but uh, having like their father move in with him in like the first episode or first two episodes and seeing their lifestyles change. And you kind of, you kind of see like the class warfare there where the slob of his father moved in. Slob's kind of too harsh. Mm -hmm. He was just set in his ways and, you know, like I said, blue collar and he brought his awful chair into Mm -hmm. Frazier's kind of pristine uh, apartment that was, everything was, you know, dutifully picked out and it was very precisely placed mm-hmm. and was to set up a certain feng shui and then this awful chair. Yeah. <laughs> I love when you get to see, so when a film addresses the backstory often of a villain, 
um, like you get to see, although Fraser clearly isn't the villain, but you see his development and how he is, who who he is as a reaction to who the people around him were, and that I find fascinating. So you get one, more dimension. One of the interesting things in the show, and they they did it in Cheers as well, is they kind of would establish like female characters off screen. Yeah, where whether it was like Norm's uh, wife, Norm's wife, uh, or with like Niles, uh, his wife. Uh, you never see her. Yeah. And she's always just kind of referred to as like this strange bird-like, mm-hmm. very brittle yeah. creature. <laughs> um, but then the same thing happened with like uh, Martin's wife and Frasier and Niles' mother, who was very much like Frasier. Uh, she was very much upper upper class mm-hmm. and wealthy and was a, I think she was also like a researcher or a psychiatrist or something um, that Martin was attracted to, obviously. But then the two sons that, came out were more like her than yeah. him yeah and you know he kind of distanced himself and mm-hmm. uh i don't know i you know I, the portrayal is just perfect of martin and then i, I think the, the two boys as well right it, what's great about that is that often the we've we've described instances where the differences were played for comedy and in that i mean played for the an antagonistic difference was played for comedy or in sometimes uh drama because it's conflict and then in this, it's so much played for comedy. Yeah. Yeah, more than conflict. Interesting, too, though. It wasn't just like his father that was like this kind of slovenly mm-hmm. yeah. uh, character. Like his producer, Roz, was kind of this a little bit more crass. Yeah. And uh, Bulldog, who's yeah, another the sports guy. The sports yeah. guy at the yeah. radio station, also super crass uh-huh. and super like. And then uh, Martin's. Uh, nurse Daphne who also moved into the apartment uh-huh. who was also like this you know she was from the south side of London and very kind of cockney kind of kind of co- to do little yes yeah, yeah and so all of a sudden Fraser, who kind of tries to establish his new life and tries to have it perfect is mm-hmm. upended by not just his father but yeah. all of his co-workers the woman that he's hired to take care of his father and the only one that he can kind of relate to is his brother yeah and ultimately you know, within that show, in spite of being like psychiatrists, they're usually wrong mm-hmm. about every situation. They can't read a situation. Yeah. And it's his, you know, his cop detective. I don't know if it was detective. But detective. Cop, I think it was detective. Yeah. It was like his cop father who's kind of just shows him how things really are. Yeah. Or kind of is, yeah. you know, the more empathic of everyone. Mm-hmm. Except that, when it comes to his own emotions, and then he's wildly off. That seems to be kind of of the of the trope. There is that ultimately the um, the two are presenting two sides of one story or two sides of the world, and that they can learn from each other. You know, mm. um, the I love that in the theme song. I remember spending most of my understanding of that show wondering <laughs> who the fuck are tossed salad and scrambled eggs, <laughs> and realizing it's kind of Frazier and his dad, like. Dad's what? kind of the scr- what? Dad's kind of scrambled eggs, and Fraser's kind of tossed salad. What? That's gr- that is in a, the lyrics. That is an amazing read. Yeah, that, that is. It's. I mean, because my mind blown <laughs> totally. I'm shutting down. Okay, uh, Richard. All right, this is my last one. My last one. Oh, right? Last one. So my last one is the song "Common People" by Pulp. Oh, oh I don't, not don't know this one. This is this is great. Yeah, uh, this leads into mine. But oh, this, does it? Yeah, in a way. That's pretty good. In a way. So uh, this was. I guess Pulp's most well-known song, I yeah. think we would say by far. Maybe not. Probably even in England, I would say. Mm-hmm. Pulp were a, I guess you would say Britpop band, but they had been doing it for like 10, 15 years. Since 1980 or so. Yeah, off and on. Yeah. And hadn't had a ton of success. They have they have a great collection of their songs called Countdown. Right. That is just perfect. <laughs> like, like, like has everything up until uh, uh, Common People. Common People. And so... Or, uh, a different class. different class, yeah, yeah. So Jarvis Cocker, the lead singer, had gone to had taken a break from the band for a while and had gone to St Martin's College, which is an art college in uh, London, and wound up having a conversation with this girl who was an exchange student who was there. She was Greek. Um, was at a bar with her, and she made some sort of comment like, "Oh, I'm thinking about moving." And she was came from a very rich background, and made some sort of comment like, "Oh, I'm thinking about moving to." I think it's Hackney or something like that. One of those, it's a very like blue collar, lower class neighborhood in, in London. And so she said, like, yeah, I just want to find out what it's like to live with common people. She had the thirst for knowledge. She stood at 
sculpture at St. Martin's College, that's where I caught her eye. She told me that the tap was loaded. I said, in that case, I'm a rumor. She said, I wanna live like common people. I wanna do whatever common people do. Wanna sleep with common people. I wanna sleep with common people like you. Or what else could I do? I said, and that kind of just took him so far back. Like, why the hell would you want to live like a poor person? Mm hmm. Poor people don't want to live, but poor people. Yeah, this yeah. is not a. Yeah. This is not a fashion choice, mm-hmm. or this is not something that's aspirational, or that people sort of revel in. So he kind of used that as the inspiration. Those kind of that whole setup is actually the first verse in the song, mm-hmm. and the whole song is just basically about him taking her through his world. Yeah. Or that's and she or just doesn't the world get of the it. poor that's just that's not very fun. It's very difficult and you have to make these choices in life that and it's, are Yeah, and it's sort of him singing to her about like you'll never understand what it's like, you know, to be poor. call to your dad and he could yeah. fix yeah. it you know mm-hmm. uh this song is on my mount rushmore of songs i love to carry karaoke but ultimately get tripped up because they play a shorter version of it oh yeah 100 percent. they have a shorter version of the song that like there's a that. single version and then there's the uh, lp version yeah and i always get thrown off because it cuts out like the last verse or one of or like right one small section and it's like i love i love singing the song and then, oh my God, they screwed it up, and I'm always mad at the end of it. Also on the rush, never learned my lesson. Also on the Rushmore of songs that have a deceptively long instrumental break in the middle <laughs> when you're karaoke, <laughs> so you're kind of just stuck there, kind of shaking your ass like Jarvis Cocker at the enemies or something. You're angry that you drank your uh, gin and tonic uh, way too fast at the beginning of the song. You're standing up. You're, you're actually like, debating whether or not you can order another gin and tonic <laughs> before uh, the the vocal part starts again. Uh, the song famously covered by William Shatner. What was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, That's the latest with weird a, one. Yeah. The one with uh, Ben Folds, um, with a guest appearance by Joe Jackson for no discernible oh, goddamn reason. That's interesting. But I, again, it's it, this is, I think, the quintessential sort of class warfare type song. And I was starting to make a list of songs that were kind of about like class and, mm-hmm. and that. Mm-hmm. And this... As soon as I thought of this one, it's like, nope, that's perfect. Fantastic pick. Yeah, that's great. Michael, your last attempt at winning the, the Murray. Uh <laughs> Uh, my last hurrah for the Murray. Uh, it's mods, aka snobs, versus rockers, aka slobs. You going Quadrophenia? Nineteen sixties England. I'll talk about Quadrophenia, but I was okay. Oh, I was just, more just just the the in general, the general, okay. the cultural um, mm-hmm. back and forth, or the the cultural antagonism of um, kind of counterculture of British youth in the sixties, yeah. where on one side you had uh, the rockers. These were mm-hmm. the Kind of uh, Marlon Brando, Rebel Without a Cause. Kind of the uh, greasers. Uh, yeah, Wild Ones inspired uh, greasers. Pompadour mm-hmm. haircuts, mm-hmm. leather jackets. Yeah. They're riding around on motorcycles. They like, uh, you know, kind of rockabilly and rock and roll. And on the other side, you have a little bit younger generation, uh, the mods, which are, you know, they're into the who. Yeah. And they're they're in clean Shark cut. Sharkskin suits. Yeah, clean cut suits. They're riding around on Vespas, on Vespas mm-hmm. and Lambrettas, and uh, they look like they just stepped off of a, a, a film shoot with David Hemming or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, they're they're a newer generation. They're a little bit younger. They're a little bit you know hipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're into like soul music. Mm-hmm. They're into R and B. They're very Austin Powers like. Yes. And uh, at some point in '64, things started getting a little crazy, and. The mods and rockers started having 
A feud in a seaside town? Yeah. Yes. Over and over, mm-hmm. like throughout the summer, mm-hmm. which is what ultimately inspired uh, the rock opera of Quadrophenia. Mm-hmm. And I just love the idea of these two classes of, uh, you know, basically a youth culture that yeah. were battling each other that were still, I guarantee, looked down upon by an even higher class. And, and, yeah. and in England, there is always a higher class. Yeah, yeah. No matter who you are, <laughs> even the queen there's yeah. some, has somebody who's <laughs> yeah. higher up than you. But I, I just like that, that, they were, that within the subgroup, they were also still the ruffians yeah. and these this subculture mm-hmm. uh, against an even higher... Uh, Do you think that America in the 60s, and maybe it's England in the 60s, youth became this controlling culture? And before... The 60s youth weren't really empowered financially, and I think the the world did not bow down toward young people. The world of entertainment today bow, bows down toward young people to p- provide things that will please them, that they'll purchase. I think at some point, youth stepped out of this underclass and into this cultural upper class where they mm. can control a mass amount of of the economy through their purchasing and things like that. All of a sudden, 20 year olds could be millionaires. Yeah. 20 year olds could be, they didn't inherit the money. They made it because they were pop stars. Yeah. Or, or, or like they could get jobs. They, they could make as much, almost as much as their parents, if their parents were still working. But it seems like what happened, obviously in England, they have actual caste system, you know, and, and any in the U S maybe less so, but I think the economy changed so that young people have more po- power, you know. So, and and with after like um, the '60s and protests and things like that, that could have probably change the world politically. It's shown that that was that was changed a little bit. But yeah, when you've got a country with a queen and dukes <laughs> and royalty, doesn't matter how high you get, yeah. they they can still knight you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At some point, they are appointing you to a uh, a, a higher class. Uh-huh. Not that high. I love how Quadrophenia ends with the the Sting, who's essentially playing King of the Mods. They go and find him working as a valet or something at a uh, at a hotel, and he, and he this kid realizes Jimmy, who realizes that his idol mm-hmm. is a, com- a complete <laughs> asshole. Right, <laughs> he's been worshiping a false idol. Um. What what a lively discussion this has been, this uh, slobs versus snobs. And this has actually taken many directions I had no idea it would take into cultural, into uh, athletics. I kind of had my lens kind of focused more on movies and things. So um, the one I want to name check is actually mentioned by Michael. And I love it because of what it, it's complete authenticity, even though I've learned that some of the story was a little bit um, cooked, but Breaking Away, which you brought up, and I, I imagine your wife, Emily, being from Indiana, that might be something Love. that they... And she went to IU, and yeah. the whole... And she rides a bike. And she rides a bike. <laughs> like, the little the little five thing is, yeah. like, a big thing every year and has been, is and, it? like, the legend of the Cutters is, uh-huh. you know, it's slightly different than what happened on screen, yeah. and, but, you know, everything, that's... Yeah, I just love how authentic that movie felt. And how eccentric these characters were, even though they were in a lowly Midwestern town. Um, there's this kid who longs to be Italian, longs to be from another world. And then the t- depiction of the townies versus the, um, the, the cutters versus the students was really clear and robust. And how it was multi-generational. And Paul Dooley, as the father, explains to his kid that... Uh, you know, these working class people who didn't go to school, who built this darn, darn town, were always looked down upon. I just loved it. And then to read that, oh, well, Cutters was a whole, totally made up name that they normally were just called stoners or stonies because they <laughs> they cut stone. Well, it's funny because you think about that. It's like they probably went away from stoners because of the connotation. The drug implication. And yeah. now if you did that today, there's no way you would have the team called Cutters. Yeah. Unless yeah, they were true. listening to like an emo while they're listening or yeah. writing or something. Um, but just such a fun, uh, fun, fun movie. I think Daniel Stern's first role. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so so I loved, I dug that just because it was one of my first slobs versus snobs that was kind of in the form of a drama. It was very comedic, but uh, kind of a drama. Okay, now I have the dubious honor of judging this Rushmore here, and I guess that makes me 
the snobbish establishment. So I love both your lists. Slobs versus snobs is about people battling within the confines of an institution and changing its geography through that battle. Now, Richard, you did such a great job of describing the battlers, whether it's redneck John Daly or Jarvis Cocker or Bill Murray. And Michael, you did a great job of showing what the institution and how that's a character, like San Angeles and Britain in the 60s, or like the golf course in Caddyshack. Seems like you were tracing the geography a little bit more than Richard. But you both are assholes because you proved me wrong on my statement that Slavs versus Snobs is distinctly American by picking some British examples. So screw you both. I'm kicking you out of the country club because I'm the establishment and you're trying to take me down a peg. Okay, so uh, that's what you guys did. So this is how I'm picking it. Meat, meatballs was my first choice. Uh, I think something that definitely kicked off the slobs versus snobs genre, or uh, actually was the second salvo after um, Animal House, and set the standard to have that monologue, or further the standard to have that monologue. Caddyshack, uh, second choice, I think made a really good point. Do we really need to talk about Caddyshack or Animal House? I guess we kind of do to kind of restore their um, m them in memory because they've been so long ago since they were made. And then Richard's uh, depiction of this this Dionysian Bacchanalian <laughs> character of John John Daly. He just seems like somebody who was in his cups like Falstaff on the golf course or something. Pretty much King Lear. King Lear. But yeah. with a big old gut and yeah. three-pack cigarettes a day. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And then just, so, you know, Richard expanding always tries to find, we could talk about French poetry from the 1700s and he would say there's a baseball player who... Right. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of Ozzie Smith. Ozzie Smith. <laughs> Um, bringing sports into it. But then Mods and Rockers, I mean, how cool is that? So I think it looks like, am I right? That I, think we we're chopping, have, I think we're chopping Bill Murray in half. we chop Bill Murray in half. You can have the Murray portion. You want the Bill part? Okay. okay. That sounds, sounds deal. All right, this has uh, been Slobs. Uh, as, as, as a resident snob, I'll take the Bill. <laughs> and I guess, you know, I'll take the uh, Murray. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of story elements mentioned in the Slobs versus Snobs discussion, and the next Mount Rushmore will mention a story element that some who went to film school, or maybe not, might be familiar with, and that is Deus Ex Machina, God by Machine. We're going to be discussing those in all the iterations that they occur. So tune in next time. This is Rushmore. I've been Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. Hey, everybody, we're all going to get late.